Hello, hello. This is Alto Podcast again, after a busy year. My name is Lydia Perovich, and I'm back on this medium. In October this year, it will be 20 years since I moved to Canada, which got me thinking about what has changed in two decades, where the country is now, where it's going, and also if I fit in more now, or if I fit in less, perhaps. So I decided to talk to people who may have thoughts on the topic of Canada and uh, ask them stuff. And the first person I talked with is the Globe and Mail's TV critic, John Doyle. John Doyle grew up in Ireland and he emigrated to Canada the same way I did to do graduate school. Then he stayed and took Canadian citizenship. Uh, I've been reading his column for years, actually, probably longer than a decade. So it was great to finally meet him. Here's our conversation. Can you? When, when did you move to Canada? You don't have an Irish accent. I came to Canada in, in the fall of 1980. I was a student at University College Dublin in Ireland. I did a BA in English and History, and then I did a master's degree in Anglo-Irish Studies. I was a serious student, but not entirely committed to an academic career. However, at UCD I was encouraged to go onwards. At that point, my main area was in modern Irish writing, and contemporary uh, Irish writing, and they specifically Irish writing by women. And so we're talking Edna O'Brien? Edna O'Brien and many others. And my idea, I, I did have an idea for uh, a PhD. It was to be about linking the social and political changes in Ireland that affected women with the women, the canon of women's writing. So it was to be a sort of, you know, more of a kind of an anthropology thing than a critical uh, theory thing. Um, I was encouraged to go on with my studies, but I was advised to leave Ireland, you know, to go to the UK, the US, or Canada. For grad studies. Yeah, 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 for graduate studies. And at the time, as I, I wasn't 100% committed to that, but Ireland at that time was in a very bad state. Um, there was This was the recession of the early 80s, which impacted Ireland before anyone else. The troubles in the north were impacting everything. There was very high unemployment. It was, the economy was a basket case. So I was interested in leaving. I applied to universities in the UK, US and Canada, and the most personable and friendly and encouraging response I got was from York University here in Toronto. So I figured at the time, I'll go. I mean, they offered me um, teaching hours, scholarship, so I would have a job that would earn me money, an apartment on campus at, at a, you know, at a reasonable rent. So I thought, what the hell I'll go for a year maybe two years if it doesn't work out you know it's two years away from here and seeing experience so 
I, I came, that's when I came to Canada and became a graduate student at York and a, and a TA teaching and so on, and I'm still here. I have never contemplated going back permanently. I have my parents, who are now elderly, are alive and, and well in Ireland, and I have one sister there. So I go back two or three times a year to see them. So it's not a radical separation because you do travel at least three times a year? Yes, yeah. And you married a Canadian? Yes, I did. Somebody I met at York University. So I was became a landed immigrant and then a citizen you know, before the end of the 1980s. How difficult was it to do that back then? It, it's always difficult, I think. When I applied to be a landed immigrant, my girlfriend, before before we were married, I came with me to some of the things you had to go through, the process you had to go through, and she was a bit taken aback by the way they treated people who were applying for, for status here. But I, I think it's always difficult, but it can be done, and it certainly isn't as difficult as it is in the United States, there isn't the same kind of hostility, but I, I went through it and um, I was perfectly happy to become a Canadian citizen. Is this home then? Oh, absolutely. What makes it that? Uh, it's where I live happily. When my first book came out, A Great Feast of Light, I made it clear that in the sort of standard short paragraph that goes with the author's photo on the book jacket, it, it usually says, you know, yeah, we would say John Doyle lives in Toronto. I made them say John Doyle lives happily in Toronto. I am happy here and, and uh, happiness is, is a major part of it. I, I like where I live, I like the city, I like living downtown, I like being a Canadian. Do you ever feel you don't belong? No, I don't. However, there are times when even after being here for decades and being a citizen for several decades, there are people who will want to make me feel like I don't belong. Someone not that long ago, just in the last few weeks, referred to me as a foreigner. This was someone at the Globe and Mail. Uh, referred to me as a foreigner, which I found offensive. I just let let it go, but I found it offensive. I think it's uh, there is on the part of some people who are resentful uh, or envious of other people's success, profile, writing style, all of that. There is a the wrong impulse will be to sort of point out that the, the person they're envious of was not born here. Now, what do you say about the recent, uh, there, there are figures in politics and occasionally op-eds get published that question, they raise questions about uh, 300,000 a year immigration. Mm -hmm. Is it just being stirred up or has it existed as just voicing itself? I found that it's, it's a very polite society that doesn't discuss certain things in public life. So maybe we put this aside and said, we're not, we're not gonna discuss this for years. I don't think it's a major factor in the Canadian culture or society. 
I think there will always be a tiny element in Canada, uh, especially outside of major urban areas, who would like to see Canada as a uniculture, that is a culture mainly of, of white people, uh, of a certain background and type. But the reality of the country is that it is not that, and the country has thrived on not being that. What's happened in the last few years, I suspect, is a kind of copycat version of the populism that you see in the US and in parts of Europe, which is anti-immigration. There, were, But that, to me, though, when that is expressed in Canada, those are not strong voices, those are not influential voices. I do believe that Canada is if it's not already on its way to being a sort of post-nation state. That is, the much of the, the populism that we see around the world is propelled from nation states. I mean, like the, the traditional European states, uh, France, Britain, Italy, that are essentially Hungary. In, in Hungary, even more so, and more even more so, I think, in those former member states of the Soviet Soviet mm. Union, because they were, uh, it was the Soviet Union created a kind of fence around them. Their experience of multiculturalism, of immigration from with people from other countries, cultures, people who look different, who have different religious practices and beliefs, they were. They were blinded to that, and now it's there's a kind of shock effect of it. But what a, what is the engine of a nation state is stalling and crumbling because immigration is worldwide. We live in a global economy. We essentially live in a global society. The ease of movement has made it has made it a more multicultural world. Uh, but there will always be people who believe, say that you know France is white, or that Britain is essentially a white country, and, and there will be a resentment of uh, people they feel um, taint or dilute that nation state. Canada has moved beyond that. We are not a nation state. We are beyond that. Let me probe this a bit further. Um, when you when you emigrate here, this is my experience as a member of a big ethnic group. Mm -hmm. You will have a pre-existing infrastructure to stick to your big mm -hmm. ethnic group. But if you emigrate as, from a tiny ethnic group, or you or you want you don't want to go back to diasporic belonging, there is no mythology that greets you. There's no <coughs> talk about vision, what Canada is. There's mm -hmm. no talk about what pro the project is. There's no, what is it that you're facing? What books you're reading? What's So I, I, I see a country kind of divided by its communitarianisms, mm -hmm. big ethnic groups and then native activism. And of course, always Quebec, although much less now. Is this a wrong impression? What do you think about that? Or, in other words, what Robert Putnam wrote about in, in about hunkering down in extremely diverse, big global cities, when people tend to stick to their own ethnic groups and kind of hunker down rather mm -hmm. than mix with other people. Well, first, 
it that is not something that I have experience of. When I came to Canada uh, to be a, a graduate student at York University, there wasn't a large Irish population in Toronto for me to enter into. And my impulse was not to enter into what existed. I did not want to be, and that was partly youth, early 20s, uh, I did not want to be defined as an Irishman in Canada. There is a long history of Irish immigration, especially to the UK and to the United States. And I did not, my impulse was to avoid any sort of full version of the Irish American experience. You know, they living in an in an area that was mainly traditionally Irish with bars called the Blarney Stone, and and, and that the didn't really Catholic exist. Yes, and that, Irish woman. That, yeah. that did not really exist because it had been generations since there was any significant immigration to Canada from Ireland, so. It wasn't there. There wasn't a place for me to hunker down, to use your phrase. And if there was, I think I would have avoided it. I think it does exist. I mean that those diaspora communities do exist in Canada, of course. And what is remarkable, and I think what makes makes the situation less about a series of groups that people hunker down in is that there are so many of them. It's not simply a matter of there being like three or four or ha even half a dozen ethnic groups that have immigrated and then a new person becomes part of that community and they are helped out into the wider world of, of Canada. It's so vast that the the barriers between them and the barriers between that group and the larger society I think disappear, they kind of evaporate. Is there is there a Canadian version of American dream? What would be the Canadian dream? Like a detached, det big detached house in Toronto with two cars and, and front and backyard? Like what is it? We are very middle class. Would you, do you find that we are very middle class? It's a, it's a very bourgeois yes. society. Yes, yes, I think bourgeois is the correct term. Which um, of course it doesn't mean everybody's bourgeois. It means aspirational. Yes. Also, we are yes. very very. I, I think the idea of a Canadian dream is a very interesting question because I don't know if there is one, in the sense that there's an American dream of 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 success and wealth. Here, I suspect it's more. It is more tied into the cliché of what Canada as a society wants and represents, which is basically peace, order and good government. It's the idea of, of it being a peaceable society where there are very few frictions uh, or tensions between groups, where there is nothing to hold you back from work, from success, from success based on your background or your parents' background, your religion or the color of your skin. It is the, the, the peace, order and the, the comfort that comes with that, that you and your family, no matter what kind of family you become part of or that you create in Canada, can exist without the tensions of um, that come in other societies 
And just off the top of my head, I would say that one of the key aspects of Canadian society, which sort of answers the Canadian dream, is the idea of universal health care. That is what defines many Canadians. A Canadian abroad, a Canadian visiting another country, if they are, you know, gently confronted with the question, which happens, what's the, so what's, what's the difference between you and the, the U.S.? What, why, why are Canadians and different from Americans? That's the first thing that, first thing yeah, that yeah, it, yeah. I mean, that's an impulse. And that, to say that, but it's a meaningful impulse because it, it, is, it represents something. It's, it's a profound expression of the fact that Canada is a caring society. And that maybe is the Canadian dream, is to be part of a caring society. Okay, that I like, but, but having Medicare is kind of boring to say, oh, we're proud of this national feature, which is Medicare, and we want order, and we want uh, not get into conflict, but be bland. Do we respond to conflict by being bland? I, I think... Should we, I, should we be more raucous? This is my question. No. I, I think you're 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 misstating the importance of, or the the meaningful importance of universal health care. Try being in a country that doesn't have it, um, like Ireland. Now, Ireland, since I left it, has changed considerably. It's been through many boom and bust periods. Not that long after I left, during that economic crisis. The um, the healthcare system was essentially dismantled. It was they uh, the governments of the day, in order to support any kind of healthcare system, allowed in giant corporations from the U.S., from Australia, from Britain. They took over some public hospitals. They were given land beside public hospitals. It is now almost entirely a privatized system, like the U.S. is. I have elderly parents and a sister in Ireland and I see what a private how a privatized system works they have to pay a lot for private health care every year and anytime they see a specialist uh, they have to pay I would say right now if my mother goes to see a specialist she has to pay 200 euros immediately like for the appointment and then I've Even senior citizens. Yes, I've asked my father how much he would get back from the insurance company, and he says about thirty percent. So that that is when you see up close how a system like that operates and how brutal it can be to people who don't have a lot of money or resources or who are elderly and frail. Then you cherish all the more the system we have in Canada. It's an example of what can happen when a country is under economic stress and one of the first impulses of a government, uh, the first inclination is to diminish the amount of money that has to be spent on healthcare and bring in private care. It's an example of, uh, to me, it's a disaster. But to, to your point uh, about, you know, should we not be more raucous? Um, Last a couple of years ago, there was um, I had lunch with um, a someone visiting from Ireland who was she was here for the International Authors Festival because she had just been appointed 
to run a, a major literary festival in Ireland. So she was here to observe how the Authors Festival is done, the administration of it and all of that. We have mutual friends, so uh, she contacted me, I met up with her. So we met up, she'd been in Toronto for about a week or so. We were sitting in this restaurant on Front Street, which had floor-to-ceiling windows, and she was asking me these sort of probing questions about Canada, because she knows I've been here for decades. And she sort of waved her hand at the street and said, I don't understand how, how it works. And I looked out the window. I mean, the thing is, when you live here, you're sort of oblivious to, to the fact that there are people of all sorts of backgrounds and colors and, uh, on the street, you know, going about their business. And she said, I don't understand how all of this works with everybody getting along. And the first thing I, I realized was that she said that coming from what is a uniculture. Ireland is, what Irish people will tell you, it's now multicultural. That means, you know, there are people from Poland moved there too. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, moved there. Um, but she, that was coming from what is, you know, a, a culture that is, that is mostly white and just the visual thing of, of seeing so many people from so many different backgrounds struck her as an, an instance where normally there would be some sort of kind of conflict, you know, and something under the surface. So I just said, well, everybody just gets along. It's like, it's like there's something in the air when you come to Canada that sort of compels you to just get along, you know, for there to not be in conflict or not be at odds with people because of your, your background. And also, just like on impulse, I said, well, you know, Canada, unlike most countries, is not founded on revolution. The United States is, you know, the overthrowing of the oppressor. Ireland is the, the overthrowing of, of British rule. Canada, I said, Canada is anchored in a compromise. This country exists because of a compromise between the British and the French. And that really is the bedrock of Canadian society. Now, I'm sure a historian would quibble with that, but uh, to her it made sense, and to me it was a sensible answer. Yeah, and both the Francophones and Anglophones have, have detached the idea of culture from ethnicity. And so they said, okay, we want immigrants who can just speak the language. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. We're agnostic now. I mean, it used to be that the, the Canadian immigration preferred mm -hmm. WASP people. I read uh, James Woodsworth, the old Canadian socialist from CCF mm -hmm. era. He wrote some books. He was a United. He was a Methodist priest, and he wrote books about immigration. And uh, in this book, uh, Strangers Within Our Gates, people South Slav, people from the Balkans, were not white considered white at that point. Mm -hmm. And I know the Irish have that history too. They've been moving in and out of whiteness and they, they are mm -hmm. white since recently only, really. So, but, but, but of course, since Trudeau, let's jump uh, through a decade since Trudeau, it's open to all, to all the ethnicities. So that, that's a fascinating, and I think this is a rare thing that what we're doing, detach culture from ethnicity, like, but, but adopt a language. In the, that, that all of that is true. And it is part, I think, of, of well, partly that is happening because it's not written down anywhere, I, as far as I know, but I think most people would intuitively think of Canada as an ongoing experiment. That is, it is, this is, it is ongoing. Like, there will be 
waves of change through immigration and through other things that will inevitably happen. It is not a fixed picture that you become part of. It's an ongoing thing. It's endlessly shifting, but in its essence, it is progressive as it is ongoing. Are we, though, interested in our own culture? Are Canadians interested in their own culture enough? Oh, that's a leading question. Or uh, are we, is a more leading question, are we American culture province at this point? No, I don't think so. No, we are not uh, an American subsidiary or a cultural province. But it's a question... But everybody watches Netflix and it, Amazon Prime is it's, at home. It's a leading question to ask someone who writes about mainly about television. Here's the thing, you see, I mean, as, as many people have pointed out before me, Canadians pay attention to Canadian news, they read Canadian newspapers, watch the news on Canadian channels, they follow Canadian sports, religiously, they read Canadian books, Canadian mm. authors have a enormous presence in this country. One of the things they don't do is watch Canadian television with the same appetite, the same fervor that they consume other aspects of the Canadian culture. Film, it's even worse than film Canadian is, TV, is yeah. even worse and it's its own sort of crisis, endless crisis situation. Why is, why are Netflix and Amazon Prime not paying taxes in Canada? I believe they should be. Uh, I think there has been a reluctance on the part of governments to put anything in the any barrier to the the sudden expansion of technology it's because from another country. because of the internet. But there there is a there has been a reluctance to uh, to put any barrier. And if you go back to the Harper government, it was very shrewd of uh, Stephen Harper to say that to guarantee that his government would not put a tax on Netflix. And that, that's because Netflix arrived and hundreds of thousands of people signed up for it. It was a, a formidable alternative to the cable bills people were paying. And for like 10 bucks a month, they were getting this vast library of content with new and original series and that. And the idea of adding to the cost of that, he knew shrewdly, was something that a lot of Canadians who don't think deeply about the culture, but who want to be entertained and watch interesting content, they were not going to be up for paying more. That this was one of those sort of pivotal things. And they wouldn't want to tax middle class. That was that couched in that. Well, I think there is that. It's, and that, that leads to the sort of bourgeois part of things. Absolutely. But it also leads you down a rabbit hole into all of the complicated mess that is Canadian broadcasting and regulatory systems. The Canadian broadcast system got away with murder for decades. The cost of cable in Canada is outrageous. The way the system was regulated to force people to buy vast packages of channels that they would only watch two out of eight channels that they had to buy. 
all of that created a system where people were, were, were paying vast amounts of money every month or every three months, and then along comes Netflix and it's 10 bucks. Mm. So it's, it's about money, it's always about money. Everything, so, so much to do with the culture is really about money and technology. There's very little that is purely a cultural movement, whether it's in Canada or something else. It's about money and technology. And in the last decade or so, money and technology have become the twin driving forces in shifting the Canadian culture this way and that. And the Canadian broadcasting is, is it will say it, it is a victim of that, but some of that is really based on a self-destructive practices over many years. But at least, at least there's sort of a level playing field for broadcasters. Like they have to put thirty percent into Canadian production, for example. Oh, that I, I, that is. But Netflix <laughs> doesn't have to. It, it it doesn't have to know. But here, no. Here's the the key question. I think and I've written about this several times. And the first time I asked the question about four years or so ago, it caused uh, something of a fuss. I I said. Where is Canada in this golden age of television? This is a golden age of television. If you take uh, the convenient marker of the arrival of the, of the Sopranos in the year 2000 uh, on HBO as the sort of beginning of this, this age, you have to ask, where is the great Canadian television since the year 2000? We have done damn all that could or even might enter the canon of television. The US has, of course, Britain has, Scandinavia has, smaller countries than Canada have. So for all of the, the bleating by the Canadian industry that they're obliged to have 30% content, make this many dramas and comedies and have this many documentaries and have coverage of Canadian entertainment, where's the great television? I mean, I, that, to me, the answer to that question is a damning indictment of the entire Canadian broadcast system, including the CBC, yes. which is a public broadcaster, is mandated to do better and different. I can tell you what, which series reached me in communist Yugoslavia, Le Fils de Caleb, which is the Quebec uh, series about Emily, it was from the 17th, mm -hmm. 18th, 19th century. Uh, north of 60, is it called? North mm -hmm. of 60? We had that. Um, and I think that's about it. And then now now people know Slings and Arrows. Mm -hmm. They know them globally. I can't think of any other Canadian series that people would quote as a, one of the best TV No, I get that. Your, your remarks are, are also an indictment. Uh, they're... It's a multi, multi-billion dollar industry in Canada. And where is the greatness? Where is something we've done that would match the best television that's been made over the last 20 Does years? Does anything come to your mind? I would say the most impressive Canadian television has come from the fringes. Uh, it's come out of, not, not so much out of policy by anyone it's it's been it's come more by by genius and intuition. Trail Park Boys is a remarkable series, and that 
you know, then the story of what how Trailer Park Boys came into being is is part of the story of Canadian television. Mike Clattenburg, who created it, made a, a short film for. Uh, he was a director. He had directed episodic shows that you know made in Atlantic Canada, and he had for some years always made a, a sort of a short film for the Atlantic Film Festival. And he, he struck on the, the notion of, he was watching Cops, you know, that Fox series in which they follow cops ca capturing criminals and it's it's like, you know, sort of low budget reality TV. And he was struck by the, how gripping j just the ordinary drama of that was. And he started to think about what if you were filming this from the perspective of perspective of the hopeless criminals who were going to get caught? And he, so he made a short film, which essentially had the boys, you know, the main characters, on some scam, and then they get caught. And it came to the attention of uh, an executive at one of the recently launched cable channels in Canada, who was obliged to have Canadian content, and. Hey, she saw this and could tell this was made on a very low budget. <laughs> and if we were to develop this into something more, it probably wouldn't cost us a lot. And it's very funny and it's it's different. So it uh, that's how Trailer Park Boys came into being. And Trailer Park Boys, I think, is you know, is actually immensely sophisticated. It's about community. It's a it's a sort of classic Canadian. Uh, classic element of the Canadian culture is captured in it. It's about community. It's about it's it's about being outside mainstream society, but at the same time being part of community that is its own mainstream. It's also very funny, the deadpan humor. Um, it's also extremely specific to a geography, yes. yeah, which yeah, the best things always have. It is Atlantic Canada, it is it is Halifax, Dartmouth more Dartmouth than Halifax, but yes. And so I admire those people who made Trail Park Boys. I admire them en enormously for their wit, their diligence, and for not making it uh, any more mainstream than they wanted it to be. Uh, Letter Kenny is another show that I think falls into the same category. Two actors started making short films, short comedy things for YouTube that are just talking. I mean, Letterkenny, 90% of Letterkenny is people just talking. I mean, they're, they're very funny. I mean, it, that too is specifically Eastern Ontario, rural Ontario, where the banter, the they call it chirping, where people bantering with each other, like insulting each other with florid language and put-downs is is prized in the community and that's really what the show is it's just people talking but it's also Letterkenny has become a more satiric show it can be very clever about the Canadian culture and Canadian politics uh, and those are two shows that are little works of genius but if you're talking about the sort of the level of drama that's epitomized in Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, Mad Men. We haven't done that. When we have approached doing it, usually the CBC cancels it. Uh, Chris Haddock's work in Vancouver, he created Da Vinci's Inquest, which was enormously sophisticated for its time. 
It's but, a crime show, though. Right? Yeah. 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 Well, he's a, it's a coroner. You know, he's a Da Vinci is a, is, a, is a coroner, and it it too is, it's it's Vancouver, it's downtown Vancouver. What what else in your view will still, will have staying power? I think we agree on Baroness von Sketch that it 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 may have staying power. I don't know about Baroness von Sketch to be honest. I think it's a very hit and miss show. Mm. Uh, I admire the you know the the engine. Uh, of creativity behind it. I admire a lot of their humor, but sometimes it's self-indulgent. And it, it, it happens with, I think, small-scale sketch comedy shows that sometimes they disappear into their own realm. And all shows like that need to be shaken up a bit by new writers, new characters, you know, and because the CBC has a good thing on its hands, I don't think it is going to interfere with it. That is not to uh, diminish the achievement of Baroness von Sketch. It's it's usually a wonderful show. It can be scintillatingly good. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you caught have you come across my eighty year old uh, roommate? It's a show that the CBC released only online. No, not yet. I no, am I'm... dying to hear what you think of it. That's one of the best things I've seen. It's a um, young Jewish guy, who millennial, who moves to live with his mm -hmm. grandparent who lives in a high-rise and grandparent is 70 mm -hmm. plus and he's barely, he has this group of friends. Just incredibly well done. And again, it's, it's just a group of people talking yeah. and kibitzing. There's one episode about live streaming uh, one of his friend's funerals. It's, it was so funny and macabre. <coughs> I will look it up. There is another... Um web-only CBC series called Save Me, uh, which is, is first-rate. And again, it's like some episodes are seven minutes, some episodes are 15 minutes, created by uh, Fab Fabrizio, uh, who's a very good actor and writer. It's sometimes funny and sometimes it's hauntingly melancholy. That is a show I admire for its, for its spirit and skill, too. Uh, what's the few? What's the? I mean, this is a grand question, but what is? Where is the TV criticism at, and where is it going? I mean, I know you're one of the f actually few arts columnists that writes columns that are at equally, if not more, about Canadian society and global changes, as is about a particular show. So I, I remember when Don Cherry did the thing for Rob Ford. I think you were the only voice was really skating about that new culture that Rob Ford, the Ford family, was bringing to the studio and that John, uh, Don Cherry was just indulging in. I remember that and interestingly I think there were two writers. There was me and Joe Fiorito at the Star who's now retired from the Star. is a wonderful poet too. Uh, the two of us wrote along sim in a similar vein about all of that and made um, some people very angry yes. about that. Yes, um, which was excellent. Well, I, you know, television always has more meaning than what you see at first glance. And that, I think, is the, the main role of the television critic these days. There is an awful lot of content. It's impossible to keep up. Part of what I do is is determine what is interesting to global male readers, that is, as opposed to readers of any other publication. What I end up doing sometimes is kind of curating for them rather than, or like, simply reviewing. 
giving a long, long gone are the days when in writing about television you were giving you know thumbs up or thumbs down to a new show the ease with which people can access content means that you are often curating the next several months of people's lives in terms of what they consume what they enjoy because of the creativity that's allowed in uh, in television especially in cable and streaming services even the most generic form of drama or comedy can have a sociological meaning can have a psychological insight can act as a commentary on the society from which it it has emerged it's i think it's important to approach television that way nothing is without meaning even if it simply looks like entertainment a fair case can be made that the form of television that came out of cable a, pre, a premium uh, cable in the US that is subscription only uh, of um, 10 to 13 episodes most of them about an hour that format form of storytelling with that amount of time 10 to 13 hours has become something that challenges the novel as a forum for psychological insight, for sociological meaning, to the point where we look, we we essentially, when we watch a series like Mad Men, we're kind of reading it as we once did novels. We're looking at the, the, the subtleties, the depths that is given to the characters. So, if and David Simon is on record as saying that he wants novelists on his writing. Yes, he does. Yeah, yes, yeah. and and, and Simon, what David Simon does too. Is si Simon's novels. work uh, on everything from The Wire up to The Deuce. Um, Homicide is fabulous. Yes, too. yes. So th those are. I mean, Simon, David Simon, who I've met and chatted to numerous times, and he's a, he's um, he's one of the nicest people in television to talk to because he started off as a reporter at the Baltimore Sun, so he respects journalists and understands being questioned about things, you know, by a journalist. Yeah, yeah, he he has been telling stories on HBO in that sort of 10 to 13 hour format as being a novel. I mean, at the level of the 19th century novel in particular. Yeah, the realist novel. Yes, yeah, when the, you can go below the, yeah. you can, you can, decide you're going in to look at the layers of a society by taking say not just the police but the legal system um the media in a in a in a large urban center and that you you find you find the the bones of a society uh, by looking through the layers of a particular slice of society and when you do that in 10 to 13 hours and that becomes storytelling at the level of the novel, the traditional novel anyway. Uh, it's important that television criticism is serious, is serious-minded, and it, it takes television seriously, and it looks for meaning in, in what people are consuming as entertainment. Now, what I see this as, <coughs> I, I totally see your point, but what I see from the side of book publishing and, and um, more experimental fiction is that the TVs has eaten up all the reading time that the bourgeois reader might have had. That's one thing. And another thing is a lot of the publishers read submitted novels for potential 
TV, David Simonish, which is originally, of course, Trollope Dickens, Balzacish. The realist novel is coming back from the TV into fiction to kind of dominate, dominate the, the novel publishing too. So there's a, there's a weird spillover. That, that, that is not necessarily a bad thing. Well, if you only want to read, read realist novels. Oh, I think there are plenty I think, we, for example, we, we both like Emer McBride, and I prefer fiction like that. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of publishers who don't want fiction like that. Oh, they want fiction but that reads easily, that grabs you, that is like David Simon. But the, the literary novel has not disappeared. I mean, you, you cited Emer McBride, the the winner of the Booker Prize last year, uh, Anna Burns, The Milkman. I've read that. It's it's an Irish novel. And it, it, it's essentially a stream of consciousness, uh, highly stylized. Uh, it is not realistic. It's a difficult read. And the fact that you're, we can, in this conversation, cite two women writers who have written very literary novels both been enormously successful and bestsellers tells you that the literary novel is is far from dead Luckily still in the media, but the question is how much time do we have for reading? So you you still read right? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, Why yeah. do you find the time? I, I Find the time sometimes you see in all the television. I mean I'm, when I'm off work. I, I read a lot it, It's important. Well, it's, it's important for me, but I can only speak for myself in that my my upbringing, my background means that while I, my work is, is writing about television and then sometimes writing about soccer, when I'm not doing that, uh, consuming the culture is an important part of being alive. It is energizing, it is restorative, uh, and that is why I go to the theatre and opera a lot. I don't read an awful lot, I read a handful of books a year, but I, I try to read books that I believe are, are important to read. Thank you so much for this, John Doyle. It was my pleasure, thank you.